Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I'm very excited about the entrepreneur that we have today. I mean, he's a is an individual that has a remarkable career going from corporate now to the venture world, being on the operator side, also on the investor side. So we're gonna be learning from both sides of the table on this show today. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Tom Glaser. Glaser, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. It's a real pleasure to be here. So originally born in New York City, you know, you're, you're one of a kind, Tom, I got to tell you, because in New York City is like a really big United Nations. So you don't really see a lot of people born and raised in the city. So how was life growing up? You know, you're, you're right. Most of the friends I had growing up, they've long since left for California or other places. Um, but I think what makes New York such a special place is that melting pot of people from all over the world, whether it's Madrid or Buenos Aires or, you know, these are your neighbors. And I think that for you growing up too with uh, European parents, you probably had the go-getter mentality because of that inspiration of seeing your parents coming here as well and, and building, you know, the, the, a better future for, for the family, you know? Yeah, they were very grateful to that the U.S. took them in during what was then the Second World War. and. You know, we traveled a lot because my father had an international business and we spent a lot of time in Brazil and in Europe, which was great for me. Uh, and it just it was a sort of a more modern, I suppose, uh, childhood in the sense that we they were globalists before it became sort of popular to live lives and work in different cities. And you didn't go far away because uh, you studied in Colombia. Yeah, I often say I had the full sort of urban education with four years uh, uh, up at Columbia and three years in New Haven after that for law school. But uh, I tried to encourage my kids uh, to leave and, you know, go to some beautiful campus with green pastures. But they both went to NYU. So uh, uh, I was not successful in changing that in the next generation. Now, in your case, you, you, you fell in love with computers, but you thought that law school was the way to go. Why, why did that happen? You know, the honest answer is that it was a lack of imagination on, on my part. 
you know, I, I, school was easy for me. I did well. Uh, I took a test. The test was good. And I had this idea that I wanted to do sort of a double major or a double professional degree, an MS in computer science and, and a law degree. And I basically got into a whole bunch of places, um, uh, almost went out west to go to Stanford to do it, which would have been the maybe the, the smart long-term thing to do. Uh, but I stayed east, uh, uh, went to Yale, and spent a good part of my law education there uh, in the Yale Computer Science Building, working on sort of gamifying various aspects of legal education. And you definitely implemented that because you went to Davis Polk and you became um, an M&A lawyer. So how, how, how much do you think, you know, all that knowledge you know, and being on the deal-making side, but more on the drafting and making sure that, you know, things are bottom up the way that they should be. How do you think that has served you, you know, in terms of value for you and your approach towards deal-making, you know, later on? I think it's helped a lot. I mean, you know, when you, when you strip out um, at, uh, the sort of superficial issues and look at what is the difference to writing a program and uh, uh, writing a contract, let's say, I, I always had an object-oriented view of writing contracts. So, you know, a silly issue that everyone sees, like the, uh, the notice provision, which appears in a stock purchase agreement, a merger agreement, an asset purchase agreement. You know, why is that not in effect a subroutine or these days a microservice that just gets called into a document composition program as opposed to an old-fashioned paper-based linear program. And so just the act of debugging in the old days a, a piece of code you wrote is very similar in my mind to you know, how do you work through, you know, how many times have I read an anti-dilution formula in a convertible uh, offering for some young company? And it doesn't work, right? The math doesn't work, which is amazing to me. And so I find it very similar and it, it was training that helped in, in all fields. So why, I mean, it sounds like you were having fun, you know, being a M&A lawyer and you studied hard for it because it's not easy to become a lawyer. But why did you decide to switch careers? You know, I really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed most of what I've done. But uh, there came a certain point. I'm curious by nature, uh, which I think helped later in, in sort of the venture and entrepreneurial activities. Uh, but once I had done, you know, uh, I'd done several tender offers. I'd done going private transactions. I'd done the range. I'd taken companies public. I sort of had the full tool set. Um, but particularly in M&A, I started asking myself the question, you know, how did the company decide which target to go after? And then what happened afterwards? You know, did it work out the way they expected to? Um, what about the social issues of, you know, the, did the chairman and the CEO actually manage to build a bond and make it work? And so that sort of drew me away from just being the, uh, the plumber 
or I used to call myself a sort of deal monkey. Uh, you know, you could you could come to me on Thursday night and say, I need to launch a tender offer on Monday morning. And provided I was willing to give up enough sleep over the weekend, I knew I could do that. But it became less interesting to me than what happened before and after that weekend. So then Reuters comes knocking. Tell us about, you know, because what 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 a what an incredible experience with Reuters, no? So so you eventually switch careers, you end up uh, joining Reuters. So I mean, how how did that opportunity come about and and what were some of those early days, you know, when you started there? Yeah, I sort of at the time I uh really was looking at two choices quite different. One was to join this uh unusual, one might even say peculiar old English company that had been around already 140 years, um, where it wasn't really clear what the career path was, um, but there seemed to be a lot of change in the air and possibility. And the other was actually to uh, join an investment bank, a private equity wing of an investment bank, where I had an offer that I you know, my friends would have understood more easily uh, and it fit, you know, a, a, a easier transition, perhaps. Uh, but I went for the more difficult one. And, and ultimately, Reuters proved to be um, a wonderful um, arena because it combined interests I've always had. Um, it was a very and remains a very international company all over the world. Um, relied heavily on a technology base um, and, uh, you know, news and information and journalism had always been interested to me. So those three elements ended up, well, I spent 19 years uh, there in the end going through Thomson Reuters. So um, it was a very happy home for me. Now, tell us about that time where all of a sudden you become the CEO. I mean, that's a pretty um, remarkable. You know, I mean, that's a really big, big shoes to fill. So, I mean, were you a little bit uh, afraid of heights, you know, at that point? So, you know, I think in in Spain, you might call that a una locura. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I continue to think they were, they just didn't have anyone better, uh, they thought. I was 40 years old. I had never run... Uh, a public company. I'd really only been running uh, businesses at that point for, you know, maybe four years. So in retrospect, it was a crazy gamble, really, that the board took. But I think they did, they could tell that um, I cared deeply about the company itself. It was a mission uh, more than just a you know, some people look for, I just want to be CEO of something. Uh, I didn't care that much about being CEO. I cared a lot about uh, what was the company, what was its purpose in the world. And um, Reuters had um, had fallen on harder times. There was tough, uh, tough competition from Bloomberg. And, you know, within, I think, six months of me taking over the Stock had fallen from an all-time high of 16 pounds to below a pound. And so it was, I mean, I was scared to death. I didn't know what I was doing, but we just started trying to fix things. And, you know, eventually 
got enough of it fixed that um, the company lived to see a much brighter future. And obviously when you, you know, people always talk about culture and the importance of culture. And, and when you are entering, you know, a situation like that where the stock has fallen, you know, so sharply, I am sure that the morale was not at, a, at an all-time high either. So how did you think about, you know, culture and, and, and also people, you know, and, and, and kind of like lifting up a little bit the spirit so that you guys could turn the ship around? Yeah, that was a really difficult thing. I mean, I think a lot about culture and all the organizations I'm part of, and I usually think of it as what do people do around here when nobody's looking, right? It's some people confuse culture with mission statements or posters that are on the wall in the cafeteria about flying high as eagles. To me, it's it's really it's the unwritten rules. When the lawyers aren't looking, when compliance isn't looking, you know, do you have a good and ethical uh, uh, culture in your business? And it starts with having really good people. The good news is that Reuters um, attracted really good people. And through the most difficult period, there was something about the company uh, that made people feel we're going to help save this company. I think we lost like one person from the top 50 at the company during the most difficult two-year period. And, you know, I just sort of was very brutally honest. We laid off a lot of people. Um, I started at the top with actually some of my closest colleagues and friends, and um, we, we got through. We sold businesses at the periphery and reinvested the proceeds to revitalize the, the core information and journalism missions of the company. And we're going to talk about, you know, the, 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 your venture, you know, chapter in just a little bit. But as we are thinking about also capitalizing on opportunities and identifying opportunities early, I mean, you guys were able to buy 2.5% of Yahoo for almost, you know, not much. So, I mean, tell us about, you know, that, uh, that story as well. So, you know, Reuters had always been a pretty inventive and playful company, um, uh, willing to take chances on technologies, uh, new ways to deliver information faster. You know, there's a famous story in a movie about Baron Reuter using carrier pigeons to uh, uh, carry information where there was a gap in the telegraph system in, in Europe. Um, so back before I became CEO, I think at the time I was running the business in Latin America, um, I worked closely with a good friend who's a friend today and an advisor in our, in our venture company, a guy named John Taysom, who ran an in-house venture fund at, at Reuters called the Greenhouse Fund. And I guess there, there was a board meeting or a, a, an internal executive committee meeting that needed to approve this transaction. And John didn't want to fly over to New York just to do this. So he said, Tom, why don't you go and present this to the board? And I was presenting another transaction, which was a much larger one, which the board did not approve, which was a billion dollar acquisition, which would have been the largest thing Reuters ever did. And after they turned that down, I asked, for a million dollars to invest in this company that they refer to in an English way as 
Yahoo. And uh, I suppose they were so relieved of the pressure of not even having to think about spending a billion that, uh, you know, a million dollars seemed like small change. And um, the deal went through and, you know, Yahoo obviously turned into a, a, a really good business, which funded a whole bunch of other venture investments to come for the greenhouse fund. Wow, no kidding. And as we're talking about transactions and presenting things to the board, tell us about the acquisition, the transaction, you know, of Thomson Reuters. Yeah, that was tough because, I mean, Reuters had and, and Thomson Reuters still has a, sort of a mechanism that sits on top of the company called the Founders Share Company, which has a golden share that's meant to protect the independence and importantly, the impartiality of the news service. And so many people thought that Reuters actually could not be sold. The answer is it could be sold provided the uh, purchaser was uh, someone willing to uphold the same principles. And um, I was very attracted to a business uh, called uh, Thompson Corporation. Uh, they had invested in and bought a very interesting franchise in law and accounting, West Publishing, West Law, Barbary, like a whole bunch of storied brands there. And I had this idea that Reuters was 95% of revenues came from financial services and 5% from media companies. I was worried that after the difficult time I had in 2001, 2002, that if there were another downturn in financial services, we would be terribly exposed. And I didn't think I could take the company through another difficult period like that. So I wanted, uh, the idea was to have a multi-vertical business. So financial services, media, law, accounting, science, education, intellectual property, and so on, and then lay certain capabilities like journalism, like art, machine learning, and other tech platforms across it as vertical, as horizontal capabilities. And um, the challenge was how to, you know, convince all the various constituencies that this was a good idea. But, uh, we thought it was a very good idea and eventually people went along with it. And so the business got created. Thompson was two thirds and Reuters was about one third the size. And I then moved the family back from London to New York and ran the combined company uh, through the integration period for another four years. That's incredible. And the press at the time reported that this was a $17 billion deal. So uh, not, uh, not bad. What a transaction. So, so in your case, Tom, you know, after 19 years of dedicating yourself to this company, then you, know, you decided that it was time to turn page. And that page you know, actually led you into the venture world. And in the venture world, you started to do some angel investments. I mean, you had your family office going uh, and some great investments such as Lending Club, TransferWise, Coinbase. You know, as, and obviously now you have your own fund going on as well. But one thing that I'd like to ask you after, you know, 
investing in all these companies and having these great success stories, how do you think about opportunities? How do you think about those types of investments and who are potential, you know, good winners that deserve your investment? Well, the first thing I should say is, you know, like everyone else, uh, uh, I immediately think of uh, the winning bets. Uh, I seldom talk about, uh, let me tell you about the 10 awful companies I invested in and blew up. Uh, but I assure you, uh, there, there have been many. Um, uh, but I have gotten lucky. This has been a period, you know, say 2013 to, to, to now where um, your returns in venture capital should be north of three or four times invested capital, right? Because it's been an amazing uh, period, also a very innovative one. But, you know, turning to the question of like what I look for, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, I want to back the right horse in the horse race. And I actually think of two different things. The horse is important, right? You don't want a lame horse. Uh, but I think about the jockey, you know, who, uh, who is the founder, wh who are the founding team, and then what's the race course? And the race course is really, you know, what McKinsey might call participation strategy, right? The race course is what is the industry you're deciding to play in? Um, it's a lot easier uh, uh, to play in a growth industry. So, for instance, cyber defense, like one of the businesses I started, uh, than it is to say, I want to go in now and start a search engine. Uh, since you know that day maybe has has come and gone, uh, 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 although maybe not completely. Um, so I think of jockey and racetrack. Very cool. And in terms of, uh, especially now, as as you were thinking about you know the the theses and and the companies that you're excited about, what are the segments that that you're passionate about that you think that have the most potential and that you're going to be allocating you know capital to? So in our venture firm, um, we do mostly financial technology and marketplaces. Uh, it's a company called Communitas Capital that I started with two good friends, uh, Doug Atkin, who ran the Instanet equities trading platform with me at Reuters, and Duncan Niederauer, who was first a, a difficult client at Goldman Sachs and later uh, the CEO of the New York Stock Exchange. So we focus on marketplaces, which don't necessarily have to be in financial services. They can be last mile uh, uh, cargo businesses, or obviously it would have been nice to be in Airbnb or Uber, which are different sort of marketplaces. But we, you know, since we're older guys, we have a, a lot of experience in pattern recognition. And we'll often see and ask the sort of questions of, um, you know, what factors are, let's say, important in building a foreign currency two-sided marketplace in financial services? What is the applicability in a new, say, industrial domain? And you'd be surprised how many questions are quite comparable in terms of market strategy. So. You know, do you prefer a wider spread 
smaller market or a very liquid, tighter spread market? What's the role of information and analytics in price discovery, et cetera? So um, we, we invest in a broad range of, of companies. I also, you know, before and in between the fund, I, I still do some angel stuff. Angeling, I'm typically doing things around cyber defense, um, some financial technology. Um, I've done a fair amount of stuff in crypto, which interests me, um, less so the coins per se and more sort of the picks and shovels around that theme. But that's that's a summary, I guess. Nice. So, so one of the things that you were missing was the operator side of things. and. You got involved with, um, again, you know, with the operating side. Now you are co-founder and executive chairman to two companies. One is Blue Boyant, and then the other one is Capitolis. So really quickly, so that the people that are listening, you know, get it. What is the business model of Blue Boyant and what is the business model of Capitolis? So Blue Boyant is a cyber defense business, and we focus really on two core problem areas in in cyber. One is your supply chain. Um, as everyone has seen in the last several years, attacks that come in via your supply chain, whether it was not Petya or solar winds, et cetera, is a huge threat. So even if you have your primary uh, uh, cyber defenses in good shape, which by the way, is not the case for a whole lot of folks, um, you need to now worry about third-party risk. So that's one big part of the business. And the other is we run a very modern sort of instance of uh, a managed security service completely in the, in the cloud, focused on uh, the latest Microsoft and Splunk applications in cyber defense. So that's Bluevoyant, the cyber company. Uh, Capitolis, uh, is really a, a sort of core B2B fintech business, which um, essentially helps banks and other uh, uh, counterparties in trading markets optimize their balance sheet. Um, it's In a way, it's like the Airbnb uh, of capital. And uh, we help banks improve their profitability without increasing risk. In fact, what we do is we take risks off the balance sheet of deposit-taking institutions and distribute them more widely to uh, portfolios that like the return and are better able to handle the risk. And your main responsibility, obviously there is many there as a co-founder, but one of them is definitely raising money. So how much money have you raised for Blue Voyant, and how much money have you raised for Capitolis? So Blue Voyant required a lot of money. You should see what our cloud bills are because we're constantly processing, continuously processing literally billions of data uh, elements. So there we raised, I think we've raised something like $300 million, and we pretty much outgrew venture. Our seed round was a, we raised $125 million at a 150 pre. So it's not your conventional seed VC. 
who at that sort of valuation was going to play. Um, Capitolis was arguably a more traditional financing story. So uh, first round was Sequoia, second Index Ventures, then Spark, and most recently Andreessen. And we've raised just about $100 million there, or a little bit more. It's less capital intensive than the cyber business, uh, but we have a great group of investors who've been super supportive of the business. One, one thing that is very interesting here is you have the experience from being on the corporate side, you know, doing acquisitions, investing out of a venture fund, you know, that the corporation had. Now, you know, you have also the, the venture fund where you're investing, you know, seeing who, you know, has the best racetrack or the best jockey, you know, that is riding the horse. Uh, and also now, you know, you have the operator role where you have these two companies that you have co-founded. So you've seen, you know, all, you know, like like the, the 30,000 foot view from every angle. I guess for the people that are listening, you know, how should they think about fundraising? Uh, well, that's a good question. I, you know, I think of fundraising last, um, but this is why this is an interesting conversation because they should, you know, probably have asked this question of you. You're a much greater expert at fundraising. I, to me, all fundraising and all deal making begins with um, what are you building? You know, what is the substance of the business that's going to throw off, let's hope, years and years of cash flow that you can then arrive at some idea of what this business could be worth in the future, even if obviously it's not profitable today, it's, et cetera. So I've always been more focused on let's get the substance right as an operator and we'll figure out the financing. But I think that's one reason, I mean, obviously I'm the lead director at Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley is really good at this sort of stuff. And so for the cyber business, rather than try and raise these hundreds of millions of dollars ourselves, my partner and I hired Morgan Stanley to do the raise for us. In Capitolis, because we were sort of more at the venture stage, and it's it's pretty weird in the venture market to show up with you know Morgan Stanley to do your seed round. Uh, I don't think that's ever been done. Perhaps uh, we did it ourselves. And 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 in this case too, I mean, you were alluding to it, and I'm just wondering, Tom, when do you sleep? Because uh, I mean, you as you were mentioning, you also sit on the boards of Morgan Stanley of uh, Merck, uh, and I think that that also gives you a good handle on 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 the strategic nature of companies and how those boards really need to function well. So what have you learned about boards? Because, I mean, we were talking about fundraising and ultimately fundraising too is about bringing great people that can help you at a board level. So how does, what does an effective board really look like? So, you know, Morgan Stanley and, and Merck are sort of special creatures because they live in heavily regulated industries primarily, but not exclusively the FDA uh, in the case of pharma company and in the case of Morgan Stanley, a whole series of regulators, but starting with the Fed, the OCC, the FDIC, the SEC, the CFTC, not to mention uh, the PRA, the Bank of England, et cetera, around the world. And so, you know, for a public company, 
uh, a board um, has, I think, an additional set of responsibilities. Some come directly from listing standards like the New York Stock Exchange. You have to have independent directors. The audit committee has to be completely independent, things like that. Um, at base, right, the corporate law is the same in Delaware, whether you're a private or a public company. You have a, a duty of care and a duty of loyalty to the company. But it's, it's quite different between, uh, I serve on three public boards. The other one is Publicis, which is a French company under French law. I've also been a director of Thomson Corp, which was Canadian, and, and Reuters, which was an English PLC. So I've, I've, I've seen corporate governance under different jurisdictions and in different regulated and unregulated industries. But the core issue is, you know, are you prepared to come to a board meeting and focus on what is in the best interests of this company? How can we make the pie larger for all stakeholders? And, uh, you know, I, I, I find it's a really good balance in my life to have older, more established companies, like the 170-year Reuters. Uh, and startups that have only been around for a year and, and they need different things out of their directors, but there are some commonalities. So if I, you know, there's one question here that, that I typically ask the guests that come on the show and imagine if I was to put you into a time machine and I'm able to bring you back in time because I mean, the, the experience that you've had and now obviously in the venture world, if you, if I was to bring you back in time and and you were able to have a chat with your younger self. Maybe it's that that younger Tom that uh, that just came out of um, you know that transaction with with Thomson Reuters, and that was thinking about getting involved in the in the venture world. You know, more at the earlier stage level. What would that piece? What would that be? You know, that piece of advice, that business, you know, advice that you would give to your younger self, and why? Given what you know now about the venture world before getting involved with it. Um, it's a really interesting question. Um, I have a variant of that in in conversations I have with you know younger people in established businesses like a Morgan Stanley or a Publicis, as well as in in early stage companies. And and really the advice is um, the core advice is be the authentic you, even though that sounds quite trite. But my um, sort of the fuller picture of it is, I think many people, and, and I certainly uh, made this mistake earlier in life, when you're starting out in the business, um, you know, you want to sound, uh, you want to look and you want to sound like the role models you see. So if you're at a, you know, when I started at Davis Polk, you know, I'm wearing a, a suit and I, I worried about like what briefcase should I be seen carrying into the office uh, for a year? I was wearing braces because a bunch of senior partners are wearing those old-fashioned suspenders. And you hear it when younger people sometimes speak. And so what I'll do with somebody younger in their career after they've made like a board presentation, I'll take them aside and I'll ask, you know, when you say things like, 
uh, we analyze this space in a proactive uh, uh, attempt to do market entry in a dominant way and using all these buzzwords and whatever, I'll always say, listen, when you go home and you talk to your friends, is this the way you really speak? Um, <laughs> you know, use language is supposed to be a way of not creating barriers or showing off. It, it, the purpose of it is, is to what to to communicate the thought to rally consensus around action you want to take um have the confidence to speak in the way that you normally do to the people who you're relaxed with and don't be some other fake self just because you think that's what the role requires so that's the advice i would go back and give the younger tom uh, uh, and it's the advice that I actually often give people, you know, in, in other places. I love it, Tom. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, Tom at Gloser.com uh, works just fine. G-L-O-C-E-R.com. I actually have always tried to answer all my own email, which is how you and I found each other. Amazing, Tom. Well, thank you so, so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. My pleasure, Alejandro. Really nice speaking with you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.